Hello, how are you doing? I'm Craig Parkinson. You are listening to the Two Shot Podcast. Sit yourself down, pop the kettle on. We're going to have a nice old chat. Who's it with this week? I'm going to tell you right now. podcast thank you so much for downloading and joining us um do you have a good christmas yeah i know there's a lot of people that have joined us they've just picked us up with the best of the two-part episode where you the listener picked your little favorite bits and that went down a treat so thank you so much for all your messages about that um look i love christmas i had a great time don't get me wrong but i am pleased that we can kick 2018 off in style with episode 25, it's the brilliant Greg McHugh. Now, you may know Greg from uh, Fresh Meat. That sounded like I was thinking what for. I wasn't. I wasn't. I know exactly what he's from. You might know him from Fresh Meat. You might know him from The A Word. You might even know him from Gary Tank Commander, which we do discuss. Um, if you don't know Greg, if you don't know his work, then shame on you. You should. He's a great bloke. Um, what else have I got to say? We met up with Greg in London. We'd been plotting all over the place, trying to meet up. I was away and then he was away. We were going to meet in Cardiff. We weren't going to meet in Cardiff. And finally, we managed to make it work on a very cold and wintry day in Soho. And a massive thank you to Tanya at Maison Berto for putting the Two Shot podcast up and letting us record in her beautiful patisserie. Get yourself down there for a cake. Or if you want a detox, just wait till February. I'm sure she'll oblige. What else have I got to tell you? Uh, Not a lot, I don't think. I think we should kick things off, don't you? Let's do this. This is episode 25 with Greg McHugh. Many people do want editing, I don't think. Only a few. How long do you aim for just overall, like an hour or well, don't really. No. We always we never like to go over the hour that yeah. much yeah. because when we first had our first sort of production meeting, are we rolling? Uh, we are just press record. All right, cool. Sure. We always talked about the podcast that we liked and what we like to listen mm. to. And we always said anything more than an hour yeah. can be yeah. a little bit, unless, yeah, you know, you're right. wanna, yeah. it's one of those big old, you know, a certain big film podcast that goes on for a couple of hours, yeah. which I don't mind if I'm in the gym. But if it's like listening one-on-one stories, totally, yeah, I just yeah. want an hour. Yeah. Um, do you want a break before you have tea, no, do you know what? I won't interrupt it. No, I'm happy. I'm, I've just only I've just had a pint, like some kind of midday drinker. Really fucking enjoyed it. You know that? It was cold outside, and I sat down and went, "I get a pint." I'm you not working today. You well, I am that. working today. This you is, can do that. I can do that. Huh? I'm a grown up. <laughs> Some would say. <laughs> um, you weren't. Was it Edinburgh where you were born? Yeah, born in Edinburgh. Yeah. But what's is it? What more? More. Morningside. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's kind of yeah, the typical posh kind of yeah area. It's kind of it's. I don't know how widely known it is down here. Like for people taking the piss, you know, if you say you're from Morningside, but in Scotland, it's an it's an automatic flag of. Is it a very affluent area? Well, is, it, is it is it like you're from Chelsea? <laughs> that's the that's only so, equivalent I know. So funny, isn't it? Like to think of an equivalent of Chelsea in Scotland. I just love that. There's no Chelsea. There's just no equivalency at all. That's so funny. But um, yeah, when I was growing up, it was all kind of. Uh, it, it was all right. But it wasn't that posh. You know, we were. Mum and Dad didn't have any money or anything. They just got a rubbishy old doer upper house when you could buy doer upper houses in that area, and then. Um, when but you can yeah. afford to. Yeah, when yeah. you can afford to. And then after that, we moved to another area called Newington, which is really posh as well. So maybe <laughs> I'm just talking rubbish. There's a theme. Yeah. There's a theme already. Well, I think they came from such a working-class background that they 
they were so desperate to get out of that. They came, my mum was from Dundee and my dad was from Glasgow and then Shettleston, really, really uh, rough areas post-war. And my mum was from uh, Fintry, one of the poorest places in Europe after the war, actually. So, right. so I think they were just desperate for us to kind of get a bit of a... A better start yeah, yeah, than yeah. they had. Yeah. I suppose what all parents want. Though, it is, isn't it? Like. I suppose that's the natural thing. But um, I don't see Mark bringing his posh, but other people like to <laughs> just pick up on Morningside and Newington. And, <laughs> and uh, I used to make jokes about it in my stand-up about you know being from the ghettos and all the rest of it. But uh, no, it was pretty standardy upbringing, yeah. Was it just you? you... No, I'm youngest of three. Sisters, so, brothers? Brothers, two older brothers. Oh, so, two older brothers? Yeah, two older, yeah. So I'm the screaming needy one and then... Yeah, my middle brother. I mean, God, I could. I probably won't. Are we on now? Yeah, yeah. We started. That's how it. Did. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Going. It's so in- this is genuinely interesting. So my middle, the brother above me is a, a neuroscient. He's a scientist at Oxford Uni. He's like a fellow, kind of academic, real, real brains of the operation. And then my eldest brother is a, um, a recovering alcoholic and drug addict, and uh, was involved in. Um, Things he got himself out of, let's put it that way, in Edinburgh, and then uh, now lives in Australia. So it's kind of between my eldest brother and middle brother being an academic and me being an actor, it's quite a bizarre, very bizarre mix of people. And has he sorted himself out now, your brother? He has completely, and we're very proud of what he's, what, he, what decisions he made to get out of that situation and move away and all the rest of it. So I'm not going to delve into it too deeply. Yeah, I mean, you know, every family's got got their things and uh, trust me you know totally yeah. so this podcast isn't about me but yeah I yeah understand yeah but you understand from. it yeah. yeah so you know that deal and and, and the bottom line is he got out and uh, changed his life around and now things are things are good and he's loving australia i don't think he'd come back nah i don't i don't know where he'd go to right enough my mom dad live in oxford now and i'm down i'm in brighton and uh so yeah, you wouldn't have an Edinburgh Edinburgh base right enough, but that's probably a good thing as well. But nah, I think he's pretty happy. And but you get back up to Edinburgh quite a bit, don't you? I do now and again. Yeah, work kind of takes me up there. I was up there recently for something, and um, uh, yeah, I went up to the Parliament. I did a mental health forum thing with young young that's people. That's right. I remember reading about it. Yeah, yeah. They, they'd asked me to do, which was all kind of quite interesting because I'd had a bit of an odd time last year and uh, at the end of a very very manic, busy, busy year. So. Yeah, get up and down to Edinburgh. It's really, it's really nice. I mean, I miss not having the family home there actually now, but um, uh, yeah, it's lovely. I do love Scotland. I'm not just saying it because you're no. here. You know, you know that I, I do genuinely love Scotland. You do love Scotland. In I fact, do. last time I saw you was in Scotland, wasn't it? It was, and then I had like a year's break, and then I went back to Glasgow. Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh, you were, were you working up there? I was doing a bit in a film. Up yeah, there, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had a little break, and the first thing I asked in the hotel was. Do you do uh, Morton's Rolls? Oh, did you? And the square yeah, sausage. Yeah. And they went, no, we don't do Morton's Rolls and we don't have square sausage. I've gutted. Did you just go straight to reception and check out? <laughs> no, I'm not that hissy. <laughs> a little bit. No, I ran around the corner and found out where the nearest cafe was. And I found, yeah. I've said this before. <sighs> Pretty well, like one. Oh, six and feet I, away. And I Brilliant. found this beautiful um, uh, old school tea room. Oh, did you? Above like a department store. You probably know where I mean. In Glasgow? Yeah, just near Sucky Hall Street. Yeah, yeah, was it the Will? Aye, one of those tea rooms. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's quite a few of them, but mm. yeah, Morton's Roll and Square Sausage. I mean, it's the... It's just the... It's the food of the heart attack gods, isn't it? It's just amazing. the perfect thing. It is, especially if you've had a bit of a night the night before. That and a, a, a Comston Iron Brew. Comston <laughs> <laughs> Iron Brew. What a man. What a man. This isn't about him, Greg. No, it's not. What uh, What did your mum and dad do? Dad's civil servant. Of uh, forty years, by the time he, yeah, he that was his from uni till till he retired. He was civil servant. Uh, my mum was a teacher for a while. She was a, a religious education teacher. Was she? Yeah, so she had a bit of a tough time uh, at various schools because you know obviously RE isn't exactly the most <laughs> respected of uh, subject matter. So yeah, I had quite a religious upbringing in many ways. Did you? Yeah, yeah, really quite full on. Um, very Catholic primary school, very Catholic secondary school. Uh, my mum and dad were religious, but didn't drum it into me or my brother. So we had the choice. And when I started playing football, that was my get out of jail card because the games were always on a Sunday. So I got to go to church eventually. Was was going to church on Sunday a regular thing? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. But then the bad thing was, was you know, no offence to people of religious persuasion, that's all, that's all well and good if that's what you choose. But I was in church like three times a week at primary school, you know. 
seven, seven, eight year olds apologizing to priests for stuff you don't know what you're apologizing for, you know. Bless me, Father, for I have sin, you know, all this stuff. I shout, I shouted. Because, you know, you panic on the day you're going, what did I do wrong this week? Oh, no, what did I do? You're a kid. You should be shouting. Yeah, you should be shouting. You should be, you know, you'd have to apologize for things that you thought and, I mean, oh, all this man. stuff. I mean, I, I've got to say, like, I can be trilingual now, but instead I can open a hymn book and probably sing you any hymn in that book because it was so drummed into us. Griff, have you got that hymn book with you? Follow me, follow me. Um, so, yeah, that was quite... You know, again, it's not until you get older and you, you kind of reflect on these things, but, yeah, incredibly religious and 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 kind of kind of waste of a waste of my brain space and it's only you know now where i get to do what i absolutely love and you know you're constantly thinking of things that would that that would aid your interests or things that are important to you that i look back on that time and you know we had great teachers yeah there's a there's a nice ethic and moral ethic behind it but i mean why am i in a freezing cold church apologizing (laughs) to an old man i don't know (laughs) I don't know. I still look at that. I think that's just madness. Did your brothers think that as well? Yeah, on reflection, or yeah. even at, probably at the time? Oh, I think so. I think the three of us and, and Chris, my eldest, was obviously from an early age showing signs of <laughs> major rebellion. So he didn't last long in one of the schools, and then um, so he, he made it quite clear he was out there. And my other brother didn't, didn't. He's a scientist, so you know now. So I think even at that stage, he was probably quite questioning and isn't religious now. So he was so far in advance of everybody else he knew. I, I, obviously, I, I hate to say it, but he probably was. I think, I think he'd proven that it was all rubbish anyway quite early on. <laughs> Just a little sketch, a little diagram in his in his notebook um, of how it couldn't be, it couldn't exist. So anyway, so that that was kind of, uh, yeah, that was early years in Edinburgh. Did you enjoy school though? Did you have a good time? Did you feel that you you slotted in, you fitted in? I think I I had quite a quite a dual a dual existence really I suppose in that I had a good group of friends I was obsessed by sport growing up so I played football tennis and golf it was alright football it wasn't brilliant it was never going to be a, a football player but you still had a lot of passion for it a huge passion for it played for the school team and then played for clubs outside of school and all the rest of it so I had that side to me and then had a, a really nice group a couple of kind of male friends a nice group of female friends and I had this other side that was the scared element of I, I wanted to be creative and I wanted to do something that my family wasn't a part of or, or um, wasn't in my background. And it took me a long time to kind of find that path. So I think a lot of high school, I didn't really enjoy. I enjoyed football, I enjoyed PE, I enjoyed sport. And then when I did drama in my final year, I found this magic, like genuinely magical thing. I was like, oh, does this exists? Because I didn't know about this before. I didn't know. I did not know. I mean, obviously, you watch TV, but you don't ever think there is a possibility that you could ever do that. No. Whereas football, I love football, but I kind of always knew, you know, I'm never going to be a pro footballer. Well, that's actually someone beeping going, Greg, we believed you could. <laughs> we believed you could have been a pro footballer. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was an interesting kind of journey, I suppose, high school. By the end of high school, I, I really didn't. I wasn't particularly happy. Um, Why? I don't know. There's a couple of idiots at school. Not kind of bullying as such, but kind of made life a little bit difficult sometimes. I hated. Do you know what I really hated? And actually, I think it was from primary school as well. Was I hated disruption in the class? I hated people that ruined the class, and that really upset me. It's a bit of an odd one that I resented classes and teachers shouting all the time. I never really enjoyed that element. And there was something about PE where you were out and about and you're playing sport or you were with your your team and your mates that I really enjoyed. And then when I got to do drama in my final kind of year, the people that were doing it wanted to be in the class and there was no battles in the class. I found I was in an inner, inner city, normal kind of school. Yeah. Um, Maybe it's because it was like freer, the sports are freer and you've got the yeah. control of the sports yeah. and people aren't being disruptive because they're all aiming for one Totally. Goal. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think there was that. Um, I don't know if that was something from primary school or just being a bit sensitive or not liking conflict or whatever it was. But um, I do remember that. And then again, when I went to uni, you don't have that. And I, I began to feel more at home the older I got. And, you know, like some people say, oh, I just love school. School's brilliant. I absolutely love school. I had such a laugh. I didn't find that. I find the older I got, the more I enjoyed life. So when I went to uni, I really enjoyed that. And I enjoyed it. 
and then I went to drama school after that. And I'd... But that says so much about you as a person, doesn't Do it? Do you think? Uh, well, or us, one as a, as mm. one as a person, because we're growing up and we're going through loads of different changes within ourselves. Yeah. And maybe that environment isn't right for us at that time. Totally, yeah. Well, I remember moving to London and going, this is, this is, this is the most I've ever felt at home in my life. Really? Yeah. Coming here at age 25, I walked down Upper Street with LCD sound system, all my friends on. I will never always remember this. And I was like, this is, I, I loved the anonymity. I don't know what it was. I just loved being nothing in this massive city and being able to wander about and do anything I wanted. I yeah. found that the ultimate, you know, some people maybe go to a place and want to recognise lots of people or want to see lots of people they know. I didn't, for whatever reason. I got here and I went, oh, this is it. No, that's a lovely feeling. I know exactly what you Complete mean. Complete liberation. Yeah. And Edinburgh, where you know, Edinburgh is beautiful, but it's a village. It's a village in many ways, and it's quite insular. And it's, um, it's not really arty, Edinburgh. Glasgow, it's not really arty. There's this perception of Edinburgh that because I think the Edinburgh Film Festival, uh, the well, Film Festival, uh, TV Festival, the, the Fringe itself, you know, this month-long arts extravaganza, biggest festival in the world. That it's an arty city is kind of not compared to Glasgow, for instance. That's the rugged cultural capital, really. Yeah, the little times I've been to Glasgow, I always find there's always something yeah. going on. There's a real buzz about totally, the place, I and think, I love I love yeah. Glasgow. It's an incredible place. I mean, don't get me wrong, Edinburgh produces. It's got great theatres. You know, it's got uh, theatres producing really good work. But as an overall vibe compared to Glasgow, so maybe there was a bit of that that I came down to London and you could do anything. You could go and see anything. Yeah, it's it's here. It's yeah. there for you. Yeah. So after school, what happened? So you got your got your GCSEs. Got, yeah, or the high, hires at that stage in the Scotland. Uh, I did a short. Oh, I'll tell you. I'll tell, well, I'll just tell you. In my final year at school, I did a short film because my drama teacher was like, "Put me forward for it." I got this part, and on that, I worked with professional actors, and I said to them, "Well, oh, I want I want to be an actor. I found this now. This is my thing." And did said, you believe that at that time? Did you? I did at that time. Yeah. I did another thing called Class Act, which was a there's a thing called the Traverse Theatre in Edinburgh, and we did this scheme where a, a writer came in to the class and helped us all write. <laughs> oh, terrible teenage <laughs> angsty, oh, <laughs> please! And then actors came and performed it from the Traverse, like rep kind of actors. Yeah. So there was that, and then the short film, and that convinced that convinced me that I was that's my world is now set. And then when I did the short film, these actors said, if we had any advice for you, don't go to drama school at 17. Don't go and apply at 17 either. And so I went home and said to my mum and dad, look, these actors have said this to me, but I want to do it. And my mum and dad were like, no, no, listen to listen to these guys. And I think for them it was a bit of that protects our son, but also it kind of makes sense. Because obviously their parents and they were worried. And no one in my family was from, yeah. Yeah, yeah. this is a new thing. Totally. And, you know... I mean, only a few years ago, my dad was still saying to me, you know, I think you'd make a really good theatre administrator. That's <laughs> he, the did not. he did, he did. And we're not, not that long ago. He said, you know, if things dry up, you know, you, theatre administration, you've got a good business brain, all this, I'm like, right, dad, this is, that, that ship has sailed. But um, yeah, so after school, went to drama, uh, went to university in Stirling, started studying sport. Oh, because you were still sporty at this sport point mad. as my well. My PE teacher had said to me, what are you doing pursuing... This drama. Drama stuff. I mean, he didn't understand. And I really loved him. He was a brilliant teacher. An inspirational man. Took the football team every Saturday every Saturday morning, even though he'd worked all week. And, you know, it must have been tough on his family and took us away on trips. He was a brilliant guy, Ian Smith. But he, even he, I remember him going, what's this about you doing? Drama, you, you're, you're, a, you're a talented sportsman. You should be studying PE. You should be a PE teacher. <laughs> like me. Like me, yeah. <laughs> But, and I loved it, and, I, and he thought I could do that. But um, I said, no, I, I don't know. I, I, you know, you're a bit 17, you're a bit confused. Anyway, I, I applied, got sports studies, went in, and then just didn't settle into that at all. Knew then. once That it night, wasn't right. Knew that it wasn't right, but didn't panic too much. There was a drama society at Sterling. Started writing, sketch, and, uh, you know, doing Amdram productions. Was that the first time you'd started writing at Sterling? Or do you tinker about before? Well, I'd, I'd written that angsty play, the the class act thing for the Traverse. Uh, so that was technically... And then in English, when I did English in my final year, I started trying to write uh, screeny 
monthly kind of things. You know, so I'd, I'd found an interest at age 17, really. Was it stuff that you would sort of squirrel away in your room and not show anybody, or was it...? Um, no, I, I think I was writing for, the, you know, for things, for English, for drama. I wasn't doing a lot on my own outside, but then when I got to Sterling, I started writing sketch, and I was incredibly frustrated, actually, at the time of what was on TV. It's quite an interesting path, eventually, how things all worked out, because at that point in Scotland culturally all you'd had on tv comedy wise representation was the west coast of scotland right you only had glaswegian accents doing comedy and i remember emailing the then well he was commissioning editor when he ended up commissioning some of my stuff but 10 years before saying why is there no east coast voices on the and that started a thing in me going well i'm gonna start i'm gonna start writing I'm yeah gonna, yeah do that because at that point even though it was brilliant like chewing the fat i don't know if you've heard of that and now of chewing the, no, fat, yeah. the fat and you know, Rab C. Nesbitt, and, which were brilliant, don't get me wrong, they were really class shows, um, but there was there was this missing thing, and I saw an opportunity, really, there must be another voice to be heard out there. Well, of course, yeah. yeah. So that was 97, yeah. The year I graduated. Oh, was it? Yeah. <laughs> you're, so you're looking marvellous there. <laughs> Thank you, darling. <laughs> um, I think that's the first time we've had Darling on the podcast. Oh, is it? Oh, sorry, sorry. Surely not the last. Sh- that was in character, though. Come on. Well you can done. have one in character. So we're still at Sterling. Yeah. And you're writing. Yeah. Um, and obsessed by um, Monty Python. I've oh, were they massive found, influence? They, well, I just found Monty Python. I don't know why at that stage I hadn't looked at them before. But, um, yeah, I started, this, uh, I started being in a group. I didn't start a group. But um, where we'd reenact some Monty Python sketches. And then I was like, this is just brilliantly liberating. And then that's when I got hooked on comedy at uni, actually. Really hooked on obsessive about why is this so good? Yeah. Why is that so good and that not so good? Yeah. And why can I not write that? <laughs> you know, that process yeah. of watching brilliance but not being able to... Of course, all read. the time. All the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. I'm everything I see, everything. And why can I still not do it today? Um, so that was, that was a real education. And then I think closer and closer, by the end of uni, I'd given up on sports studies. I was doing a business degree out of a textbook and I spent my final year rehearsing really a, a, a production of um, an inspector calls you know and people say to me you know you've got a dissertation all the rest of it by that point i was like yeah get, yeah yeah get, get rid of this yeah i'm going to do this production and then the minute i finish this i'm going to drama school i'm not i know what i want now you sorry were, mom and dad you were at what now 21 <laughs> uh yeah by the time it came out i was 21 going on 22 yeah and so i spent a year working and saving up and researching drama schools and then applied in, yeah, so I must have been the end of 22 to start when I was 23 after that. And I got in the RSMD and eventually. What about funding for that? Because you'd already got government funding for university. I had, so I did a postgrad that uh, my mum and dad paid for. Which is a year, isn't it? It's a year, yeah, 52-week. Uh, it was a 52-week course. So in term times, it was like doing two years because it was non-stop. Yeah, it was full. I remember the postgrads. Yeah. It's full, full on. Full, full on. Um, Thank you, Greg. But yeah, I was very lucky in terms of that. You know, saying oh, I'm not from a privileged background at all. But yes, I was lucky that I'd said to my dad, "Look, this is all I want to do," and he said, "Right, well, I support you, you. If you get in, we will help you with this. If if you're absolutely certain that's what you want to do, yeah." But oh. at this stage, it was one year. Yeah. And you're not talking, I can't remember how much it was, but it was Well, it's a big difference to the three years. And also, totally. and were you were you living at home at the time? No, I, well, I'd saved as well. So when of I was course, saving... Of course, you'd gone out and worked loads yeah, and saved. Yeah, I'd saved quite a bit. So I used that money for accommodation when I moved to Glasgow. So I was living with mum and dad at that point um, and then moved to Glasgow, did the year. I came out and then... Hung about in Scotland for a bit, just long enough to know that no one would sign me, <laughs> no well, one would employ me. Let's go back. How did you, <laughs> how did you find that year and the other people in that year? Because obviously they're very different to the people in university. It it was a fascinating year group because it was international students and and people from the UK. So I think it was twelve of us, twelve people that didn't really gel. I kind of I think me and me and my mate Joe. Uh, there was one other guy who we kind of we did we didn't take it too seriously, which I think in the end saved us 
there was a guy running the course who was, and I don't mind saying this now, he was an absolute misogynistic moron of a man who was just all about quelling, not about playing and encouraging. He was all about bringing you down at every single opportunity. And, and I always remember it because part of it was you had to write, at the end of each week, you had to write a diary about um, about your week, but you had to be very careful not to think that you'd done anything well. <laughs> Honestly, I'm not joking. So if you went in and went, I felt pleased about that, he'd be saying, why do you think you did that well? And it would all be about dumbing you down. But by that point, after Sterling, thankfully, and this is what kind of saved me of that process, I'd started doing stand-up. So I'd got I'd got the comedy bug. Whoa, whoa, yeah. I know we've got the comedy bug, but oh. getting the comedy bug and being fascinated about comedy and writing sketches yeah. and all that, to go in... Do you know what? I'm going to do some stand-up. Yeah. That's a massive leap. It was a huge leap, but I remember by the end of uni, loving comedy so, so much, and then getting into stand-up, and Billy Connolly, that I'd become a bit obsessed with at uni, I said, I'm going to do that, because I need some outlet, and now I need yeah. to find out if I can... And was this was this stand-up going on stage as you telling jokes or going on as a character? No, as me doing kind of straight stand-up, yeah. Please tell me about your first stand-up. I can't. I can barely remember it. There's a club in Edinburgh called the Stand Comedy Club. Yeah, very famous. It's the best. It's where I I started. And at the time, this is pre-millionaire, you know, stand-ups. You know, this is not when it was fashionable. This was about a lot of people kind of wanting to get on in comedy and and loving comedy. So they do a, a night on a Monday night in Edinburgh, Red Raw it was called. And I didn't tell anyone apart from one mate from uni um, that I was going to do it, and I just did it. And when I did it and I came off the stage, I mean, I can't remember. I wouldn't have gone that well. I can't remember clearly how badly or well it went. I was completely addicted. Really? Oh, it was like it was the biggest adrenaline to land anything. And something must have landed in order for yeah, to must have something. Done. And you're only doing five minutes, which in comedy terms, five minutes can be a very long yeah. time. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, so that that had started whilst I was applying to drama schools and I was working also at a, a leisure centre uh, selling gym memberships. So what I was doing during the day, people only buy gym memberships at lunchtime and at the end of the day. So for the rest of the day, I was writing stand-up and then performing it at Red Raw on a Monday night. Wow. And then gigging. I'd started to drift to different gigs and i built all that. I'd built up quite a network of gigs by the time I got into drama school. Were you basing stuff in your stand-up on your personal life? Yeah. Loads of personal life, loads of Edinburgh, loads of characters I'd met, things at school, things at uni. I mean, nothing complicated or intellectual, <laughs> but just stuff that made me laugh. Well, that, that comedy shouldn't be... Comedy can be anything and nothing, can't it? It doesn't it, have to absolutely, be... Absolutely, yeah. You know. If anything, it shouldn't be intellectual, really. Well, you know, nothing... For me, comedy is not those Radio 4... Yeah. That's not for me, but, you know, it's got a massive audience, well, but I'm it's certainly saying, not for me. No, it's not the visceral laughs. You're not going to get me bent over on the kitchen sink, you know, no. listening to that. Uh, well, I mind you, that to be fair, there are some things that are... But generally speaking, I know exactly what you're saying, is that I was after the... I was after the characters, so a lot of this was all kind of going towards... The act, more of the acting world as I yeah. was, Billy Connolly's vignettes, his stories, the people that featured in the stories, him coming back to the story. That's what I'd started to kind of aspire to, like massively, probably overly. So as as when you're starting out, you know, you don't have your voice. You're, you know, you're trying oh, to emulate. No, I, you're trying I, to emulate. Well, I can imagine, but if you put somebody like Billy Connolly that is God on that pedestal, mm. you're just learning from the best, and obviously subconsciously you're gonna. Yeah. Taking a bit of his rhythm well, or his yeah, voice. And hopefully I mean I was conscious of making sure I didn't you know, it's not about I would never do other people's material, but I wanted to tell stories that people enjoyed and I think I I started to do that not too badly. I think in, in retrospect I was more of an actor on stage than I was a a stand up willing to really open themselves up. I think the best stand ups are the people who cut their heart out and throw it on the stage. Yeah. yeah I mean. and, and that's a having watched so much, so many brilliant people and worked with brilliant people, the real brilliant people are those individuals. And it can be terrifying to watch as an audience member sometimes. Oh, it can. I find, because I've been in those situations where I've gone, this is really uncomfortable. Totally, yeah. But I respect how, what uh-huh. a genius you are, yeah. And and also, on, on that fine line of it, when you see that and it doesn't fly with that audience, it, it just becomes totally tragic. 
Whereas the the, the average stand up who's um, doing the uh, the have you notice stuff, you know, they'll just coast along, but they'll never be. They'll well, never they'll never be amazing. And I think to be honest, I I was I was veering and you know I was staying on a line of oh he's he's all right he's quite good, but then eventually I, I started to really reflect and go, you're not you're an act you're. You're about the characters and about narrative and about story. And... So there was never a time when you thought, right, no, I'm going to put all my heart and soul and my energy and creativity into this. I was, I, I, th- I was too scared. But, mate, you got up on stage and started yeah. to tell jokes. You've, you've taken that step. For me, that is the scare. And I'm sure for a lot of people, yeah. getting on stage and trying to make it as a stand-up yeah. is the scariest thing ever. I think it is, but then... You know, you'll know this as well. There's... Getting on stage full stop is an odd thing. The, the parameters of control, so i.e. you've got a play behind you, in stand-up you end up having this mini play of jokes that that you've written. And, and yeah, it is terrifying, but you do have the opportunity to prep and to... And, of course, you're in, when, in a play, you've got other people there. To you're... blame. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say a support. <laughs> support, yeah. yeah, yeah. So in a way, your your preparation, your jokes are the support. Well, they are, but it's a very lonely world. And actually, in the yeah, end, it, it really is. I think when you know when after drama school as well, when I moved to London, when I was trying to you know just get get work, and 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 by that point, I'd done well in Scotland, but it was like going back to square one in in London because there's so many brilliant people and people didn't really know who I was. Um, you realise just how lonely and difficult that as a career is, I think, or certainly in the early stages. And I think what was beginning to happen at that point was I was finding the love of stand-up draining. And then as as I got involved in more and more things in London, like improv and uh, just anything else, actually, I could kind of get my hands on for performance outlets. Yeah. That improv became more interesting. Sketch became more interesting. Longer narrative became more interesting to me. And I started to kind of move away from the, hi, guys, uh, another great gig here tonight. Yeah, lovely to see you all. Um, you know, that Which style is of something stuff. you never did. No, I never did that, I don't think. But, um, yeah. Did you feel like, were you learning by watching other stand-ups at that point when you moved to London? Yeah, I think I think what I saw when I first moved down here was how much I'd relied really on a lot of local references and how difficult it is really to be a brilliant stand-up, to be universal, to, you know, these great, especially a lot of the Americans, the stuff they talk about is so universal, you can't rely on the intricacies of Scottish culture or Scottish accent or Scottish specific characters. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, a, that's a huge transition, actually. So when I came down here and I watched, you know, so many brilliant stand-ups, but, you know, kind of awesome individuals, I was like, oh, wow, you can take that anywhere. You can take that set anywhere in the world. That is phenomenal. Um, but again, I think by that point I'd kind of started to back out of that and yeah. follow the the acting dream, which is what I kind of really want to do. So just going back to the end of your postgrad year, mm. how is that? How is it feeling? Because were you you weren't really a tight year, would you say? No, not a tight year. No, no. So at the all. end at the end of that year, or the end of any three years, yeah, tensions kind of mount. Because you, everybody wants to go on to the next step. Yeah. How, what was that ending like for you? Well, it, it was quite specific to our year group. There was a decision made um, to do a product. You know, at the end of year, you would do a showcase yeah. for agents. So yeah. you'd have, what, three minutes each to do a monologue and a, or a couple of monologues and a, a two-hander, whatever. Uh, our course head decided that we would put on a, a devised play that we had devised. And invite agents to come to, yeah. Just, I mean that. See that that sigh, that that inhale, that gasp. Sorry, not even as a gasp. That that is what represents that for me. So that was a disaster. And the feedback we got was, what on earth? No one got agents. No one got any interest. No way. It was a terrible devised piece of work by in a rushed setting. We we did it at the Criterion in, in Piccadilly Theatre. So there was lots of people there, yeah. And just the feedback was a complete disaster. So at the end of that course, to have done as you know, lots of really good work, I think. Um, it was it was a very demoralising end to the course. I mean, it was just a risk that could have been to be paid off. You know, the, the, I think the theory was, well, let's put on something that shows 
an ensemble that actually I think agents just want to see the individual. D- 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 like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, 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 and also as a result of putting on device play, of course, people, some people didn't get enough time. Some people got all the time. Yeah. Um, and it just did not work. So it kind of, it kind of threw us out into the industry at that point, really with on a kind of bit of a bum note. I mean, if it ain't broke. Well, exactly. You know I mean? There's, there is a reason, isn't there? Yeah, that These things are done the way they are. It's great. Do your device stuff. Do it in the middle of the year. Yeah. Do it in do it in the safe environment that is your school or your theatre. <laughs> Behind just closed you. doors, generally. Well, if well it, also, but, because yeah. that, that year or that three years, that's the time you make all those mistakes. Yeah. You do whatever you want to. You play King Lear right now <laughs> yeah. when you're 23 or whatever. Totally. It's great. Do it. Yeah. Well, that was the other thing, age-appropriate things, which, of course, at Showcase, if anyone's listening, who's going to do a showcase, do something age-appropriate. Do something that suits you. Do something that sells you. You know, take a risk with maybe the material, but do something that is... Look, play to your strengths, but play, know yeah. your limitations. Totally. I mean, that's the Ab- one... Absolutely. That's the one thing I've, yeah. or I've learnt, certainly over the past 15 years, I would say, know your limitations. Yeah. As, a, as a personal thing for me. Yeah. I mean, do whatever anybody else you want to do, but yeah. God. I, I think it is being objective about... Not to say you can't do lots of different things, but absolutely learn the stuff you can't do. Look, yeah. be, be open yeah. and go, yeah, of course I can do that. <laughs> but come on now. Oh, I read for something be- the other week. I was like, what? Did you do, do you, what? <laughs> no. And I did, and I came out and went, no, <gasps> no, you know. Why did you do that to yourself? You know that wasn't. But just good. be honest with yourself. Yeah, yeah, I know. Um so that was quite an odd one. And then, so you didn't get an agent? Nobody no. got an agent? Uh, I, I, to my recollection, I don't think anyone did. Uh, there might have been maybe one person that got interest, but I might be wrong about that. But gen- I'm not just saying this about me. I mean, generally, it was a disastrous kind of yeah. uh, reaction to it. Um, and I'm, not, I'm not bothered about anybody no. else. I'm bothered about you. Well, there we go. Um, and so after that, being back in Scotland after a kind of demoralising showcase play thing, uh, I just decided uh, there is nothing happening here. I might as well take a risk and go to London, and um, and that was interesting. So tell you what happened there. Please do. Right. So I was gigging at the Stand Comedy Club one night, and this this guy comes up to me at the end and says, "Oh, I enjoyed that. Um, my name's Dylan. This is my friend Nick." Uh, I'm like, "Oh, cool, cool. Thanks very much. Thanks very much." And they're like, "Oh, they were boys from Sheffield." And um, Dylan's like, oh, did you want to have a pint afterwards? He was just a really nice guy. So I sat and had a pint. And it turns out Nick was uh, the guy from Kaiser Chiefs, Nick Hodgson. And the, the bar staff had printed out a picture of him and given it to me going, I think that's the guy from the Kaiser Chiefs. I didn't know who the Kaiser Chiefs were. And sat down and had a pint with him. And in the middle of it, I just said, oh, is this you? <laughs> a picture of him. <laughs> anyway, yeah, it is me. Why have you got that? And I'm like, I don't know. This is, all, this is all very embarrassing. But out of that funny, bizarre little exchange, this chap Dylan... Um, I mean, he was obsessed by comedy. We got on really well. He lived in London, Northern. You know, we just kind of got on instantly. Yeah. We ended up running a comedy night together in Farringdon, Slaughtered Lamb Pub, which was... I know the Slaughtered Lamb. You know the Slaughtered yeah, Lamb? Yeah, I do, yeah. Like, downstairs in yeah. that beautiful yeah. room. And Dylan said, oh, look, one of my friends is going to do the door for us, Claire Nightingale, she was called that night. Oh, great, cool. So Dylan and I, it's all really exciting. We're booking brilliant acts because the stand in Edinburgh had helped me get contacts for really good people, come headline had a ball doing this and then Claire Nightingale who's t- literally taking tickets at the door one night said to me have you got an agent and I said no and she said oh I'm all right because I kind of I've just started working at an agency and I'm like all right who's this <laughs> brilliant this sounds a bit dodgy who do you look after and she said well uh, Rowan Atkinson League of Gentlemen uh, um, Eddie Azard all right I went oh all right <laughs> so Claire recommended Jeanette Linden, this, who is now my kind of writing, you know, writing side of my, my agency uh, agreement, um, she came down. And so from a really chance meeting with a guy in Edinburgh who was a hairdresser but also did stand-up, we moved down to London, we started this club, Claire was doing tickets on the door, working for PBJ, and then Jeanette came down. And then, you know, after several months of seeing me, and I got signed to PVJ. That's brilliant. I walked, I walked in the office and Eddie Izzard was chatting to Jeanette Linden. No. And what I were you was, like? Proper star well, I, saw, I saw League of Gentlemen's poster on the wall. I mean, I was just PVJ, Peter Bennett Jones himself said hello to me on the way in, who I knew, of course, from, you know, 
Lenny Henry and Rowan Atkinson and all the rest of it, looking after them and starting, um, you know, uh, comic relief and stuff. And then uh, before I knew it, I was part of the books of this agency. Wow. So bizarre. It was such a bizarre kind of chance meeting and then a contact and then, you know, just from putting yourself out there. So with the Slaughtered Lamb stuff, even mm. though you were booking uh, different acts, were you emceeing or were you doing, yeah. do, you were doing a little bit? I was emceeing, oh, yeah. You MCing? Or Dylan and I would, would uh, do one week each. Or I'd, uh-huh, we'd just kind of do it between the two of us. And then that ran for a while. And then running a gig's a lot of work, as I'm sure you can imagine. And yeah. Just be, just took over, yeah. But that was kind of how things started to get a bit of traction down here was just by... Putting, you know, putting yourself out putting, there, just putting yourself out there, yeah. Because I'd had nothing from the showcase, so there had had to just go back to comedy and stand up and see what happened. That is that. so brilliant. I mean, because it is, yeah, it's um, it is a little bit of luck. It that is lovely chance meeting. But yeah. you still got a graph when you come down here. You can't just go, all right, let's go and put on a club. No, you've got to, you've yeah. got to work at it, I suppose. Well, you do, but then that's just it's just anything, isn't it? In in many ways, there's. In this industry, there's not it's not huge. Well, I mean, there's the, there's the talent you require, but there's also there's also the kind of non-stop nature of being freelance and made redundant. And I think the sooner you learn that, and bearing in mind I'd done a business degree before I went to drama school, <laughs> I don't know. I think that, in a weird way, helped my outlook for going to drama school and coming out of drama school is like, it's business, it's business. You need to work, you need to work. Yeah. You live in London now. Oh my God, the pressure of rent. It's a it's a big thing. There's a kind of logic is you have to just keep going out. Yeah. And then eventually these, these you're right though, you know, the, the luck and the con, and the contacts, but London is such an unforgiving place I found in the start is that it forces you to go out. It forces you to work. But what else are you going to do? And and that was a good lesson. Brutal, because if you if you don't earn enough down here, it is you're out. You're out you yeah. are out because yeah. it's just too expensive. It's too yeah. much. But in terms of the career setup, gives you gives you a really good work ethic. I think. Do you ever? I mean, look, you know, on, on these podcasts, we don't really go through credits and jobs and all that because mm. I don't want to. I don't really find that interesting. Already, yeah. things like this to me are interesting. And yeah. even though we're friends, I've still found out more about you sat one-on-one <laughs> than I have when we've, we've been out with a bunch of people because yeah. that's just the, the nature of what you do. We, totally. you know, we, we We never get to do this one-on-one, whether I'm no. talking to a friend or I'm talking to somebody, I don't know. But have you ever... Do you ever contemplate giving up or has there been any times where you've gone, I've just had enough or this is affecting me physically or mentally that it, it, this just isn't healthy for me? Yeah. Yeah, I have. I think I have to say, since I've had children, you know, different outlook you on know, life, isn't it? I yeah, mean, it's just the minute one of your child being born, you're you're just. I've got two kids now, and I won't I won't go back over all of this, but uh, after my f- uh, first child was born, uh, I broke my ankle very very badly in uh, in a well known downtown club around the corner from here um, <clears throat> not even that not not pissed actually anyway broke my ankle very very badly seven months prior to breaking the ankle I just filmed series one of the A word so th- that was great the new show coming out so I kind of felt a bit safe but I'd signed up to do a massive arena show at the Hydro in Scotland for Gary Tank Commander so we'd put it on sale it sold alright but we had to sell 25,000 tickets to make it kind of worthwhile wow. right at that point we'd sold 7,000 just before I'd broken my ankle shit the show was on nine months later right and this was a double break dislocation <laughs> metal work nine screws plates pins <sighs> hadn't written the show yet a young baby and we were moving house three weeks after I'd broken my ankle right to Brighton from London uh, so you, you can see where this is all going yeah. So the the pressure on me from breaking the ankle, I had to recover it, recoup it, write the show, and in the middle of that, even with my broken ankle, I did another Gary Tank Commander election show where I interviewed all the heads of the political parties for BBC, which was just madness. Anyway, the long story short is we put the show on at the Hydro, we sold 30,000 tickets, 
uh, a pin snapped internally in my ankle a month before the live show. No. Yeah. In that same meeting with the consultant, he um, casually said, oh, I presume you're diabetic as well, right? So <laughs> something he saw on the x-ray. Turned out I'm not, but that took another year to sort out. From what they saw on the x-ray, that caused another scare. Oh, Jesus. Oh, my, oh, I mean, it was just a month before you can imagine, and the script wasn't quite finished. <laughs> the pressure? The pressure was too... It, well, I'll get, I'll get to it, but basically what happened was I did the show with the snap pin, the consultant said, we'll need to get that metal work out now, but you can do your show, but I can't make any promises. I'm abseiling down at the start of the show on this wire, or oh, 60, 70 feet, and not knowing what's going to happen and if I'd land on it even a little bit awkwardly, who knows. We did the show. The show was a huge success. After the show, I hit a total wall. Like an, an, uh, The reason I knew things were not right was because instead of after the show came down and went out for drinks, I remember walking into the rap party and the noise was just, I was like, this is too much for me. I just don't know what, I don't feel right. I don't feel happy. I don't know why, why am I not on a par with everyone else in this room? And then after that, the next day, I just went into this kind of odd space and then the next day and the next day and then after about a week, uh, I said to my wife, I was like, I, can't, I don't know what's going on. I said, I can't be in a coffee shop at the moment. You know, it was one of those. Yeah, I, like, I, can't, yeah, yeah. I can't be in rooms with people. No. Uh, and then that started, I went to see someone and that started a kind of a realisation of I had pushed myself to whatever the, literally the limits of my brain. I felt like I couldn't have a conversation with someone. I'd, I'd filled, I spoke to someone recently about this, I'd filled the sponge. You know, the sponge was full in my brain and it started to leak the anxiety. It was just, it yeah. started to leak out my, out my head. So, because it's got to come out one way or another. It's just got to come out. Yeah. And it shuts down at that point. You know, I'm not talking about a full-on breakdown, just a kind of... Um, I just feel incredibly anxious. Yeah. Um, and so I spoke to my fantastic agents who said, yeah, of course, just stop. Just stop for a few months. But in that space, I was like, I can't do this. I can't have two kids and be doing this what am i going to be doing in 15 years am i going to be doing this am i honestly going to be putting my family through this all the time but i think that was a symptom of where i'd reached and i thought i need to stop this and then as things gradually calmed down and the sponge started to kind of reduce from all the stress and i became you know it was a period of you know maybe eight weeks where i felt bad and then i started to feel really normal and i feel great again now but for me, that moment of stopping was the biggest reality I'd ever had. But also, the pro- it's the prospect of being made redundant all the time. Yeah. And, it's, yeah. and with kids, you're like, oh, really? But, you know, it is so important to stop sometimes. But yeah. I, I know six and one and a half doesn't either, but for your personal well-being... It is, yeah. You know, regardless if you've got a family. Yeah, totally. You, yeah, you, absolutely. Yeah, you have to look after yourself because, and if you do have a family, yeah, you have to look after yourself because you're you're a part of the same team, and you totally. have to. They have to. You have to. Your children rely on you. And yeah. You've got to be there. And it's not just financial. It's it's, it's yeah. No, it's having no a, I'm not even talking no, totally. about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking about being there and being a good father and, and present. And, yeah, yeah be being present. present. Yeah. Which sounds wanky, but it's not. It's about, of course it isn't. I mean, it's about how not it... worrying about this silly industry. Well, know? the great thing is, yes, we've got you know we've got no control. Sometimes you know the, the prospect mm. of redundancy is always forever looming yeah. for us. Um, but look at the other side of the coin is the fact that we have children and other mm. people have got children and they're doing this. Do you know what? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing the school run. Yeah. And I'm there when they come home. I'm there making totally. their tea. Yeah. Whereas, and I'm sure maybe your dad was the same, he's out the door and then he's probably back at sort of half past five, yeah. quarter to six. Teas are on. Absolutely. And then you've got another hour and a half and then it's bedtime. So at least they get quality time with us as parents. So the least, the yeah. least we can do is be there and be present. Totally. And I think I think you're right. I think there's... there's, there's I mean, I think at any stage, in anyone where, they, where they're feeling stressed and super stressful what you do is you just draw on you draw on the stress and you project into future stress yeah and it's <laughs> just snowballs it's a snowball effect whereas there are so many benefits to being an actor with children yeah there are 
And also, even one of the best benefits I've been lucky to to find, really, is that that unexpected gig that comes in or that unexpected voiceover, you're lucky to get, things are rosy again. Yeah. You know, there is something to be said for the erratic. It only takes one job for all that just to sort of change a little bit. Yes. That little carrot dangling. And, And you're right, you get to spend time with your family. I mean, I live in Brighton and... You know, the trains issue that people go, oh, God, I don't want to hear any more about the trains. But the reality of the trains issue, certainly a few months ago, Southwest Trains was uh, men and women going into work in London, getting on a train at half five in the morning to try and get in on time to not lose their job, and then being back at half seven at night and not seeing their kids for days and days and days. It's no life. It's no life. So for all the kind of madness of, of this, and my wife's brilliant at just saying, all right, well, what would you rather do? And you go, eh. Nothing. I wouldn't. I wouldn't rather do anything. But there definitely have been times where I've thought, fifteen years from now, am I? Where am I going to be at? Will I have reached the point where I'm getting scripts through the door? Choose from one of these, or will I be at the stage of, oh, we'd love to see you for this? You know what I mean? Is that? Well, then you have to make the decision. You have to make. Oh, right. Well, do I carry on in this vein, or mm-hmm. am I going to be allowed to step up? Yeah. Well, I write as well. I'm trying, you, and that's that's the great thing, though, that you've you have got another string there. Yeah. And for people who don't know, <clears throat> just before we touched on um, Gary Tank Commander, which oh, yeah, is yeah. A, uh, you can look that up, but it's a, a character uh, that that Greg does. But I, I don't know how that came about. So could we just talk about how that came? Yeah, about? that, that came. <laughs> you know, that came about um, in such a bizarre way. 2016. Um, actually, I, I've got to mention this guy because he, he really kind of uh, changed my changed my kind of life. Anyway, Will Andrews, he's an actor and stand up and, and real creative genius. I think I met him in Edinburgh gigging at the stand. And when I met Will, you know, I remember in the Tony Tony Pitts uh, podcast, you're talking about people that are, are your people. Are your people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, up until that point, you know, I'd, I had the football crowd at school and I'd found drama. I'd never met anyone like Will Andrews before in Edinburgh. Me and Will just kind of, I was like, who's this guy who's so bizarre? He was a brilliantly, uh, he wasn't a traditional sound, he was kind of character, but performance art and just brilliant language and use of music and all the rest of it. Anyway, me and Will started hanging out in Edinburgh. Blah, mad time, brilliant time. Going out a lot, a lot, a lot. Far too much, but lots of fun. Anyway, we ended up doing Edinburgh Festival... 2015 when I thought I was capable of doing one hour of stand-up comedy when I was not I was not (laughs) Craig I was not I I was so far away from being able there's such a a heartbreaking realization of when you're a stand-up who can do a really decent 20-minute club set to writing an hour, hour a full hour of structured you know even if it was guy 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 you still need to think about the hour I was nowhere near it was embarrassing it was a terrible show and I'd crowbarred it into moving to London and going back to Edinburgh. Anyway, dying on my arse literally every day of the Finch Festival 2015, Will Andrews is in the same venue, doing better than I am, but still not enjoying it. he just started working for a production company, uh, doing kind of research. He was trying to get into directing and, and stuff like that as well, which he could do. He was phenomenal. He said to me off the cuff one day in, in one of our depressed moments in this venue and he's going how are you doing i'm like i'm this i'm dying every day this is awful and he said well look the production company i'm working for the comedy unit they're looking for anything to develop any character ideas have you got any character ideas and i'm like i don't know not not hugely but i could think of something he said well why don't we take our minds off this hell uh why don't we go and improvise something so what happened was he turned up with a camera. I'd come up with this idea that no one was talking about Iraq. There was no comedy on in the Iraq war, which is kind of understandable. And he said, well, who, who would it be? And I said, well, what about a guy that you wouldn't expect to find in the army? Like a camp Edinburgh <laughs> guy. Already, already funny. But it was so... It was cause there was just an opportunity there. And, you know, there's a kind of camp uh, kind of accent in Edinburgh. And, then, and Will was like, well, let's shoot it and see if it's funny and if it is great, if it's not... So we improvised this scene, literally, in my mum's car. Will cut it together, and they put it on at this night in Glasgow, at the stand in Glasgow, where they used to put... It was called Rough Cuts, was the night, and they put on videos, sketches, video, right. video clips. People would do stand-up and some sketches, right? Eclectic night. 
And it just so happened that a guy called Shane Allen, who is the head of now BBC Comedy, yeah. who used to be the head of Channel 4 Comedy, saw this clip and went, what is that? <laughs> I don't know what it is, <laughs> but I like it. And he commissioned us to do a 10-minute version of it for E4 called The Funny Cut. And uh, and Will phoned me. I was living in Northfields in uh, London, East London, uh, West London. And Will went, uh, you sitting down? And I'm like, what? He said, remember that clip we made in August when we were, you know, in a terrible place? Um, this guy, Shane Allen, some guy from Channel 4, saw it. He loves it. He wants me and you to develop it into a 10-minute for E4. So, again, just going and improvising something, just me and him, no boom or no, yeah. no one there, just this little clip. And so that started a whole four years of development with Channel 4, doing sketches, sketch shows where Gary got developed then I went back out and doing Gary Live to try and really find the voice, and that was brilliant because it was the only way you really find the funny, funny stuff for him is was with a live audience. Um, and then eventually we made a half-hour special called Gary's War for More 4, that won a BAFTA, and then BBC came in on the sly and said, look, if you ever had any ideas for a series, we'd take it. So then that the BBC took it off Channel 4, and then I ended up making three series of that show for the BBC. Mad. Just from sitting in your mum's car. Sitting in my mum's car. Uh, after dying on Mars, being in really, I got uh, in the Scotsman, I was pick of the worst fringe. No, you were. I was. And I was absolutely, was, it was like one star reviews across the board. I was, I was absolutely gutted from that year. But out of that misery, ended up this character that I ended up playing to 30,000 people. At oh Hydro. my God. I mean that just shows in this industry, doesn't it? Like how how things can just suddenly turn, and you know, it took a lot of work. I'm not just saying it went from that bit. Took a lot of development and a lot of people helping me as well. That's the other thing I've got to say is like I have met awesome people who have mm. helped and helped and helped and developed me as a writer and a, an individual and an actor and all the rest of it. So it's not a solo effort. Like Will directed the funny cut as well, and. Um, I wanted him to do the series, but then he went off and did Sorry, I've Got No Head on BBC. That became a big success on his own terms. And um, he did Broadchurch recently. And, you know, he's had his own, um, you know, brilliant stuff, but weird little connections and It's things. so important because, you know, we were talking before about just stopping, just taking a break. So you stopped and took a break from the worst, yeah, from one of the, the worst, worst runs, yeah. In The Fringe. Yeah. And then you and see what happens. That, yeah. I mean, I still can't believe... When I think about that, because there's certain deaths in comedy that, you know, when you're a performer, you just don't really forget. And that month, to me, was just... Because you can't cancel your show, you know. Oh, you can't. You can't just go, do you know what, I'm not well, doing it. No, because the agreement with the stand... Well, you had to... They, you have to give the, the venue who's, who'd allowed me to do the show for free a cut of the money that people have come course. in for. yeah. You know, I'm, so the stand had been brilliant to me and encouraged me, but I just hadn't written properly. I hadn't worked up that hour and I was too young and I was probably a bit arrogant and thought well yeah I'll just use my 20 minute club set and we'll, we'll riff around it you know <laughs> horrible how horrible to think oh I deserved every, every brutal review I got you know because people are paying money you can't be doing filler material and then your club set you know how dare you but Greg there we go you're a soul thank you so much for coming on man not at all thank you And there we go. Episode 25 is done. We have officially kicked off 2018. Greg, thank you so much if you're listening. Um, it's always great to spend time with you. And thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And, you know, I never ask anyone uh, to, to say something they wouldn't want to on this podcast. As you all know, as you can tell, it's all very spontaneous, very natural. And if people don't want to talk about things, you know, I don't um, railroad them and force them down a path that they, they don't want to be. That's uh, just not my style at all. Um, so a massive thank you to Greg for being so open and honest. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. Uh, I thought it was the best thing to do to kick January off with uh, this episode. Um, and uh, as it's January, I don't really have a lot of news. 
that's kind of it. What I can tell you, I just did a little snort, and I'm so sorry. What I can say is we've got brilliant guests coming up. I'll let you know, as usual, on Monday on our Twitter feed, at Two Shot Pod on Twitter. We're on Facebook, Instagram, at Two Shot Pod. You can always email, which is twoshotpod at gmail.com. I should know that by now. I don't know why I always keep forgetting it. Sorry to producer Griff. He hates it when I do that. Um, Yeah, we are off up on the road next week. We are going to Lancashire. We are also going to Yorkshire to spend some time with some very interesting people. So until next Thursday, I've been Craig Parkinson. He's been producer Griff. And this has been the Two Shot Podcast. You take care and thanks so much for listening. The Two Shot Podcast is presented by me, Craig Parkinson, recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. Our music, our brilliant music, is courtesy of Then Thickens. Cheers.